Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Welcome back. This is indeed the real history of the Founding Fathers. It is great to have you here. We are going to cover the Declaration of Independence. Before I get into that, I will cover just the basic intro here I like to get out of the way. If you have any comments, questions, or thoughts, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's where I check for the reviews. And if I have uh, the time, I will read the review on or the comment on this podcast, and I will answer the questions or talk about what you, what you have to say uh, to the extent possible. I also have a Patreon over at Podcasts with Roman. If you want to send a message through the Patreon, you certainly can. I have other podcast material over there as well. Now, about the Declaration of Independence. Great document, the Declaration of Independence. Probably one of the finest documents ever penned by a human being in the history of the world. And it has stood the test of time so far. The Declaration of Independence on a daily basis comes under a nonstop, never-ending, withering assault, but for now, the Declaration of Independence is still with us, and I am grateful for that, and I'm sure some of you folks are as well, hopefully all of you folks. I'm going to cover the Declaration a section at a time. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to give you my thoughts about the Declaration of Independence, and there's a couple uh, sections I'm going to skip, but we're going to cover most of it. And the few sections I'm going to skip, it's really just to kind of speed things along, but for the most part, we're going to cover the whole thing. So put your seatbelts on, ladies and gentlemen, and let's go for a ride. The Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson, as we established in another episode, and edited, of course, afterward by uh, folks such as Dr. Franklin and Mr. John Adams. So let's get into it. Let's talk about this declaration and learn something from the Founding Fathers and try to put this um, in context. This is going to be the official engrossed copy of the Declaration of Independence in Congress, ladies and gentlemen, July the 4th of 1776. This is going to be the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, and still to this day, in my opinion, the declaration of the 50 United States of America. And the sooner more American people realize that or understand that, the better off we will all be. Starting with the first section that I'm going to cover, and I quote, When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a pretty spectacular statement, just that part of it. Does that give you goosebumps sometimes when you read that? When you think about the implications in world history, when you think about all of the changes that took place after, when you, think about, when, you, when you think about what that means for us as human beings, and especially for those of us Americans who are keepers of this document, it is our fundamental responsibility as American citizens to keep this document, ladies and gentlemen. This is ours. This belongs to us. Now, these rights belong to the world. 
Every human being in the world has these same rights, but we are the keepers of the document. But let's take this a piece at a time. Quote, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. End quote. To dissolve the political bands, obviously, we are talking about the colonies of British America dissolving their connection and all allegiance with the British crown, which we're going to read here in a few minutes. But that's what they're talking about. And why did they do that? Well, they're going to get into that. We're going to talk about this step by step. But they, quote, hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. In many state constitutions, it's really life, liberty, and property. And originally, it is life, liberty, and property. Why did they change it to pursuit of happiness in this particular declaration? There were reasons for There's actually a lot of thought behind that. That is to say, different ideas as to what compelled them to change that. But in state constitutions, in some cases, you will see this actually articulated as life, liberty, and property. And of course, there are protections for property rights in the state constitutions for that very reason. Property has a lot to do with this. You can't be free unless you own property or unless you can own property. If you don't have the ability in a system to own property, you cannot be free. One of the hallmarks of slavery, ladies and gentlemen, this comes up on later episodes of this podcast. One of the hallmarks of slavery is the absence of the ability to own property. Slaves do not own property. Citizens do. That is a fundamental difference between the citizen and the slave. Keep that in mind. And they are inalienable rights, it says. Inalienable rights. What does that mean? They cannot be separated from the individual no matter what. And this kind of connects us to our pursuit of happiness versus property and inalienable rights. One of the problems the Founding Fathers were contending with was slavery. And one of the reasons we know that human beings cannot be property, like the slave owners articulated, one of the reasons why we know they cannot be property is because these rights are inalienable. That means they cannot be separated from the human being by any means not by property rights or anything else, so they are always human, not property. Keep that in mind. Quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, end quote. Government gets its power from we, the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union. Have you ever heard that before? That's where government gets its power. It's from us. We are the government. In, in, we are, well, we're a part of government. Like in the United States of America, for example, we have the three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, in that order, in the Constitution. But preceding that, there is we, the people of the United States of America. We are part of that government. We are a check and a balance on that government. The power comes from us. And a lot of the rights that we have as American citizens, they are not delegated to government to have any jurisdiction over whatsoever, like freedom of speech. That is a right, an inalienable right, that is retained by the people. We the people regulate our speech. The government does not. This is very different than in most other countries in the world. Most other countries in the world, people do not have the right to freedom of speech. The government regulates their speech. They do not. Here in the United States, we regulate our speech. The government does not. See how that works? And by the way, slaves don't have freedom of speech. They can't say anything that they want. Otherwise, the slave master is going to come over and crack them over the head with a baseball bat. Citizens have the right to free speech. Keep that in mind. And more specifically, these um, the governments are, consist cons are, are instituted, I should say. As it says in the document, governments are instituted among men to secure the rights, right? It says that, quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, end quote. They're not, they're not constituted 
The government is not constituted to create these rights or to create new rights or anything of the sort. It's to secure the rights. Secure. That's it. Because what the Lord giveth, the Lord can taketh away. Or what the government gives, the government can take away. If it's the government conveying these rights upon us, it can take them away. But because these rights are not given by government, they are inalienable, meaning they cannot be separated from us. And who gives us these rights? Quote, the laws of nature and of nature's God, end quote. And also, quote, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, end quote. The creator, our very, our very human being, our existence as human beings is what gives us these rights, not the government. Thus, the government cannot take these rights away. The government is simply instituted to secure these rights. You would be surprised how hard a concept this is for people in the world to grasp. Because they're, the, na- the natural tendency of a lot of people in this, co- in this world, this is the dirty little secret that nobody will talk about. That's not really a secret. It's really just common sense if you think about it. And if you just watch human behavior. There's a great many people in the world, not everybody, who naturally yearn to be slaves. They yearn for slavery, and they lust after the tyrant. And then there's the rest of us who just want to be free so that we can chart our own course and so that we can build our countries and we can build our neighborhoods and our communities and we can make things better. But the rest of the world, in many cases, including millions of people inside the United States, they want to be slaves and they lust after the tyrant. That's why they do everything they can to try to install dictators into power. And it's why they try to convey more and more and more power upon the central authority. They're lusting after the tyrant. It's a very dangerous thing, and it is a very peculiar phenomenon in humanity. The human, human beings and their desire to be slaves and to be crushed by the tyrant is very bizarre. I can't even honestly say that animals have that tendency. It really, it really exists in the... Uh, in the sphere of humanity. Even animals seem to want to be free, but there is a certain segment of the population of humanity, in ver- and it happens all over the world. Like I said, even here in the United States, they, people want to be slaves. How else do you explain how, ma- how many dictators and tyrants and monarchs and kings and emperors have, have, have secured power throughout world history? This has been going on for 10,000 years. If you don't believe what I'm saying, just cast a glance back 10,000 years and look at all of this crap. The czars of Russia don't maintain power for no reason. The Soviet Union did not become a, a basically some dictatorship crushing the rights of the people for no reason. Napoleon did not become an emperor for no reason. The kings of England did not crush people's rights for no reason. The pilgrims, the separatists, did not leave England and come to the United States for no reason. They left tyranny. They wanted to be free. Whereas the people in Britain seemed to want to live under, live under tyranny. Obviously, they kept the kings in power for so long. Britain was one of the least desirous of tyranny. Britain was one of those countries that was least desirous of slavery, but still they had these tendencies. And Russia, for God's sakes, their entire history is marred by, marked by basically their population being a bunch of slaves, serfs, either under the Tsar or under the Soviet. China, very similar concept. And what is that about people? What causes that? I don't know, but there's always somebody who's willing to take advantage of it, the tyrant. King George III, Ivan the Terrible, Napoleon, Saddam Hussein, Der Fuhrer in Germany, Mussolini, Mao Zedong, the pharaohs of Egypt, the list goes on. It's very frustrating to watch human beings actually do this. But here in America, historically, most people, thank goodness, have desired for freedom. These inalienable rights, that's why this document is so important. 
Let us continue on. Quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, end quote. It is the people's right to alter or abolish it. My gosh, Roman, how dare you quote that evil declaration of independence? How dare you? That sounds like insurrection to me. Well, I don't know. It sounds like the founding fathers to me. The, the big problem is, is when, when do you draw the line in the sand and determine when government becomes destructive of these ends? When do you draw that line in the sand? With King George III, we have our answer. The Founding Fathers gave it to us. That's the easy one. But looking back through history in some cases or casting a glance forward into the future, it gets a little murky. But the good news, the, the Founding Fathers gave us a lot of indications of this. The, the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, assemble, petition, religion, press, so on and so forth, Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, and others. These have to be maintained, and to the extent they're not maintained, I would say it's a safe bet that uh, a government has become destructive of these ends. How do I know that? Because that's what the Founding Fathers told us. They didn't put the Bill of Rights in place because they were bored on a Tuesday afternoon, and they didn't write this declaration because they were bored on a Wednesday afternoon. This is serious stuff. This isn't mythology. This isn't a joke. This isn't a game. People really wrote this stuff. They signed their name to it, and then they sent people out into the field to die for it. And that's the reason why we have it today. This is serious. This isn't a game. Quote, to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, end quote. And that's what the Founding Fathers did. Unfortunately, uh, King George III was not having any of it, because tyrants never do. Tyrants always want to maintain their power. And people being free doesn't really give the tyrant very much power. To get more power, the tyrant has to take freedom. It's a zero-sum game. There aren't a lot of zero-sum games in the world, but this is one of them. For the tyrant to achieve more power, the people have to lose more freedom. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. It'll be, it's been that way for 10,000 years, and it'll be that way for another 10,000 years. It's never going away. Remember that the next time you want any elected representative body, be it a legislature, a parliament, a prime minister, a king, a tyrant, a despot, an emperor, a president, whoever, anytime you want them to have more power, understand what you're doing. You're giving up freedom. I hope it's worth it. Let us continue. Quote, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And according to all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed, end quote. The heck are they talking about? The first part, quote, that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, end quote. In other words, because you had a bad Tuesday, don't overthrow the frickin' government. Just because you do not like one provision in the Bill of Rights, well, I, I don't like that amendment over there, Roman, for Pete's sake. That amendment over there in the Bill of Rights, it bothers me. I don't like it, so I think we should overthrow the United States government. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. And what does it mean to overthrow the United States government? You know, it, it's, it's really, there's a lot of different ways to do that. You don't have to declare war on the government to do that. Okay, because really, it's, it works like this. The Constitution is our frame of government, correct? Yes, that's a rhetorical question. If the Constitution says you, you cannot do, the government cannot do something, and then some state legislator comes along and passes a law 
that says, well, we can do that thing, which is in clear violation of what the Constitution says, that is overthrowing the United States government. Oh my gosh, Roman, how dare you say that? What are you talking about? Well, when you try to alter the Constitution outside of a constitutional process, in other words, you can't, you can't just willy-nilly make up a law in violation of the Constitution, and that's legal. You can't do that. The Constitution has supremacy. The state constitutions at the state level and the general constitution in the nation, they have supremacy. You can't pass a law out of a legislator just changing things. You can't just do that. It happens every day, but you can't, legally speaking, you can't do that. It's illegal as crap. It's basically a criminal act, and, and it's overthrowing the United States government. Don't do that. That's a transient cause. Most of those are transient causes, like what they're talking about here. But in that particular circumstance, people tolerate it a lot. The American people tolerate a lot of violations of the Constitution in that regard. Why? Quote, Mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. End quote. In other words, people are much more likely to suffer under some terrible situation than they are to actually change things for, for the better. I mean, we know what that's like, don't we? Like I said, the, the, various, uh, the various illegal laws that get passed into, uh, into being in any given year in this country that are in clear violation of the Constitution. Why, Roman, whatever do you mean? If any law is passed curtailing freedom of speech, that's, it's illegal. If any law is passed curtailing freedom of the press, it's illegal. The, the general constitution is pretty clear on this, and there's no caveat in there. There's no caveat. There just isn't one. And the Founding Fathers suffered for a good long while before they did anything to declare independence. I mean, how long did, were they putting up with King George III? How long were people putting up with King George III? For quite a long time, and it got all the way up between the Stamp Act and everything else. We'll talk about some of this stuff later, but, but, but before, by the time these people get to the point where they're really hacked off, we got the intolerable acts, okay? Not, a, not any light and transient causes to be found here. The intolerable acts, whereby they basically overthrew the legitimate government of Massachusetts, installed a military dictator, started sending thousands of soldiers into Massachusetts to basically do whatever the heck they darn well pleased, including go out and try to molest people and steal their property and kill anybody who got in their way. I'm dead serious. They shut off the port of Boston, they impeded commerce... They upended the judiciary and made it almost impossible for anybody to be guaranteed a fair trial. Then the Founding Fathers finally got hacked off. But even then, they didn't really do anything except petition and hold a Congress in Philadelphia, etc. It wasn't until the British military marched out of Boston and started killing people that the Founding Fathers got fed up. And even then, it took a whole year for them to actually declare independence. No light and transient causes here. They didn't just willy-nilly overthrow any governments. It was actually the British government, by the way, that was overthrowing the governments of the colonies. That's what they were doing. Meanwhile, the Founding Fathers were suffering over here all the way up until 1776, and they declared independence, and then they had to suffer for quite a while longer yet, all the way up until about 1783. These folks did some suffering in their time, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we need to listen to the Founding Fathers. They know what it's like. They experienced this crap. When they built this country, they had to deal with a lot of crap before they could actually start building. And they tried their best to do it the right way with petitions and all the rest of it and holding a Congress and trying to, call, trying to get a hold of the king and saying, hey, could, you, could we fix this? Can we do this? Can we do that? Can we accommodate this or that? Let's come up with a plan. Nope, 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 nope. King wasn't having any of it. Next thing you know, the soldiers come out to kill people. 
Let us continue on. Quote, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing an invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. End quote. Very interesting. Let's read that first section again. Quote, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, end quote. Evinces a design. What is a design? Some people would call that a conspiracy. Oh my gosh, these founding fathers, a bunch of conspiracy theorists. Well, in this case, it's conspiracy fact. This design that was laid out by the Parliament of Great Britain and King George III was intended to, quote, reduce them under absolute despotism, end quote. And this will be demonstrated on this podcast. Just keep listening. There's more episodes coming. Keep listening. We're going to demonstrate this. This is, this is serious stuff here. This is what gets thousands of people killed. But it has come time on January 4th of 1776 to throw off the British government, and to provide new guards for their future security, and that's exactly what they did. Continuing on, quote, Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former system of government. The history of the present king of Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having a direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world, end quote. The present King of Britain, a history of repeated injuries and usurpations. That's exactly right. That guy has been between the Declaratory Act. We're going to talk about that. Stay tuned. Keep listening to these episodes. But between the Declaratory Act and the Intolerable Acts and a multitude of other things, including sending soldiers out to kill people, of course it was having the direct object of establishment of an absolute tyranny. That's exactly what was going on here. Continuing on, quote, He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend them, end quote. I could really, I could go on for quite a while about this. Quite a while. Does this sound familiar to you at all? Oh my gosh, Roman, what are you talking about? Just, I'm just asking a question. Listen to this right here. Quote, he has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them, end quote. So this would be the governors, the colonies, what we would call the states today, trying to pass laws of importance, trying to pass laws to govern their states to govern their colonies in the case of the Declaration of Independence, what it's talking about here. And then the king would basically just have it suspended. Today, we would call that tying the laws up in court. And while they're suspended, just utterly neglected. So nothing. So the things that need to get done in these colonies are not getting done. Continuing on, quote, He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish their right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing, of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing, with manly firmness, 
his invasions on the rights of the people, end quote. This whole section here is talking about representation. And then, of course, this smacks of taxation without representation, right? You've heard that phrase, I'm sure. That's typically the one and only thing that's ever really talked about in the public discourse as to why the Founding Fathers did what they did. But it was not even close to the only thing. Not even close. And some of that's being talked about here. This is very interesting. Quote, he has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, end quote. Why in the heck would a tyrant not want people to be represented in a legislature? Exactly as they articulate here. Quote, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only, end quote. Only tyrants are afraid of representative bodies of the people. Only tyrants get, just stand up and start fighting tooth and nail against the people's representatives. Only tyrants do that. So when you see King George III fighting tooth and nail against the representative bodies in the colonies, what we would call the states today, that's the hallmark of a tyrant. That's what they're saying. I don't make this crap up. And isn't this very interesting? Quote, he has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures, end quote. Fatiguing people into compliance with measures. Just basically wearing them out, grinding them down to the point where they just can't do anything. They don't, they're, they're so exhausted from fighting this thing, they can't even do anything. There's a multitude of ways that tyrants do that. One of them is exactly as described here. Another one is basically just firing off one tyrannical edict after the next. The intolerable acts was very much that kind of thing. They're just they're creating these intolerable acts, one after the next. Then they're sending in the troops. Then they're denying petitions and all the rest of it. And, and the Congress is trying to fight all these things one at a time here and there. And while they're doing that, the king is assembling an army to go out and kill them. If he can't fatigue these people into compliance with his measures, he's going to send the army out to kill them until they comply. Just wear them out. Grind them down and wear them out. Create enough chaos that people just get so overwhelmed, they get fatigued into compliance. By the way, anybody out there in the world, including international to the United States, does that sound familiar to you at all? Any of this ringing a bell? Why, Roman, whatever are you, whatever do you mean? I, I don't know. I'm just asking a question. Skipping forward just a little bit, this next section here is interesting. Quote, he has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers, end quote. That's very fascinating. And then continuing on, quote, he has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries, end quote. This is why we try to divide things up. You can't have the concentration of power in the central authority like that. You cannot do that. And by the way, this is going to be a foreshadowing of discussions yet to come, but this is one of the reasons why I do not approve of this process. This is, what, this is, in my opinion, a mistake that the Founding Fathers made. This thing we do where the President of the United States nominates Supreme Court justices. Now, the Congress obviously has to approve them. Usually, it's, I, I call it the rubber stamp committee, because most of the time it's a rubber stamp. But the President of the United States up, appoints these people, essentially. That is a huge mistake, and it should never have been done that way. Why, Roman, how else would you do it? Stay tuned to the podcast, you'll find out. But that was a huge mistake. Because it, it really is a repeat of this thing that they're complaining about. That judiciary has to be kept as far as, more specifically, the Supreme Court, that part of the judiciary, has to be kept as far away from the executive authority as possible. Why, Roman, why would you say that? Because of exactly what they're talking about here in the Declaration. You cannot have these two things in proximity to one another, ever, 
under any freaking circumstance. That's what they're talking about. Cons- consolidation of judiciary powers in the executive. Incredibly dangerous. And of course, that's what King George III wants. Because he wants to control everything from soup to nuts. So he can ride roughshod over the people. Continuing on, quote, He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance, end quote. That is very interesting. Swarms of new officers. Multitudes of new offices. What does this sound like to you? Big government, right? You ever wonder why there's a, cert- there's a, certain, collect- there's a certain body of American people who really hate big government? They like it to be small, efficient, nimble, fast responding, not burdened by bureaucracy, not so big it becomes unwieldy, unmanageable, undisciplined, unaccountable. Why is that? Because probably this sentiment articulated in the Declaration of Independence runs in the DNA of the American people, as well it darn well should. And reading this document helps remind us as to the why. Why do people feel that way? I don't know. Cast a glance towards the Declaration of Independence and find out. It's not because they're a bunch of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. It's because they've probably had this sentiment rolling around in, their, in, their, in the DNA chain of their family since 1776. Just a thought. Continuing on, quote, He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures, end quote. Standing armies are dangerous, ladies and gentlemen. That is written into every state constitution amongst the 13 original states that I have read so far. Standing armies are dangerous. That's what they said it over and over again in state constitutions, the founding father. Go read the state constitutions of the original 13 states. You're going to see it in places like Virginia, Massachusetts, and elsewhere. That standing armies are dangerous to liberty, and they should be accountable to the civil authority. I'm paraphrasing, but that's almost exactly what the state constitutions say in this country. The ones that were written by the founding fathers. Standing armies are not supposed to be kept amongst the people. It's why we don't do that here in this country. Because of this example set forth by the Founding Fathers in the Declaration, and it's why we have the Third Amendment, you know, in the Bill of Rights, no quartering of troops, etc. That's where this comes from. And the reason why it requires the consent of the legislature, or it should, is because you get April 19th of 1775 if you don't. That's when the British military marched out of Boston to go out into the country to steal private property or destroy it and kill anybody who got in their way. And that's exactly what they did. And it was the well-regulated militia that stopped them. It was the well-regulated militia that came out, of the, came out of the hills and the hollers of Massachusetts and started shooting at that army once that army started shooting at them. And they shot at that military, marching all the way back to Boston. Why? Because a standing army is dangerous, and you have to defend yourselves against a standing army. But to prevent that from ever happening, you have it under strict authority of the civilian body. The legislatures, the states, the governors, the president, the Congress, etc., Continuing on, quote, he has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power, end quote. What have I been talking about? You know, I'll go ahead and do it just for context, just so we understand where the founding fathers are coming from. This is going to be from John Adams' draft, the original draft of the Massachusetts Constitution. And originally as drafted, this was in Article 17. I forget if that changed, you know, afterwards, but it's the copy I got in front of me right now. But I'll read this. This is directly from Mr. Adams himself. And I quote, The people have a right to keep and bear arms for the common defense, 
And as in time of peace, standing armies are dangerous to liberty. They ought not to be maintained without the consent of the legislature, and the military power shall always be held in an exact subordination to the civil authority and be governed by it, end quote. That's pretty plain. That's what I like to call plain English there. I would like to thank Mr. John Adams for writing that for us and for helping us to understand the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America. That's why I call the letters from our founding fathers the, the instruction manual that came with the Declaration of Independence and Constitution. Quote, He has affected to render the military independent and superior to the civil power, end quote. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. That's how militaries end up exterminating whole swaths of the population. It's happened in so many countries. And it would have happened here if the Founding Fathers had not stood up at Lexington and Concord and shot back when that military started shooting at them. Plain and simple. Continuing on, quote, He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretend legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefit of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretend offenses, end quote. That's basically the, the, the um, a good portion of the intolerable acts of 1774 in a nutshell. Stay tuned to the podcast. We're going to talk about those in detail, but that's what he's talking about. You get the idea. Continuing on, quote, For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries, so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever, end quote. That last statement, declaring themselves invested with powers, legislators in all cases whatsoever, that's the declaratory act. Stay tuned to this podcast. We are going to talk about that. But when you hear this part right here, quote, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments for suspending our own legislatures, end quote, that's basically an insurrection. So for anybody out there who says that the Founding Fathers were the ones that committed an insurrection, they overthrew the government, they declared war on Great Britain, no, they did not. They didn't do any of that crap. Great Britain declared war on them when they sent the military out to kill people. That's number one. And number two, it was the British government that committed an insurrection when they illegally overthrew the legitimate government of Massachusetts and violated the charters of the colonies. Exactly articulated right here in this declaration. I don't make this crap up. The Founding Fathers were not committing treason. The Founding Fathers were not breaking any laws, not substantively and not pervasively. Destruction of property, Boston Tea Party, is one example where some people did do that. But other than that, no, they they were not. They certainly weren't committing an insurrection, and they certainly weren't declaring war on Great Britain or overthrowing a government. That's not what they were doing. They were defending government. They were defending the government of Massachusetts and their colonial charters, exactly what they're talking about here. So don't let anybody sell you that line of crap. Because it's exactly that. It's crap. 
Why, the Founding Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, the Founding Fathers were committing high treason, and the Founding Fathers were overthrowing the British government, and they were going to install a new government in its place, and it was going to be the United States of America. The Founding Fathers were committing an insurrection, a grand insurrection against Great Britain. <laughs> That's what the Founding Fathers were doing, I'll tell you what. No, they weren't. People are going to try to sell you that line of crap if they haven't already. That's not true. Continuing on, quote, he has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people, end quote. That is exactly true. Waging war against us. When you, when you send thousands of soldiers into Boston, turn it into a garrison town, and then march those soldiers out of Boston to destroy property, molest people, and kill anybody who gets in your way out in the countryside of Massachusetts where people were just minding their own freaking business that day, trying to run their farms, their shops, and their towns. Next thing you know, there's a British column marching down the road to kill them. That is waging war. Continuing on, quote, He is, at this time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death. Desolation and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfectly, scarcely paralleled, in the most barbarous ages, totally unworthy, the head of a civilized nation, end quote. Basically, they're saying this is not the conduct of a leader of a civilized nation, attacking your own people, sending out your butchers, bringing in foreigners, bringing in foreigners who don't belong there, to kill people in the colonies. That's what they're saying. The foreign mercenary armies, the Hessians and others, the king is bringing in these foreigners who have no allegiance to the colonies, because, and this, there's a whole story behind that. Kings have been doing this for a long time. Kings have been bringing in foreigners, tyrants, tyrants, kings, emperors, whoever. They bring in foreigners to a land who have no allegiance to that territory. They don't care about the people. They're not their neighbors. They don't belong there. They've got no connection with the land. They bring in these foreigners to oppress the people and kill them because they'll do it. You pay them enough money, they'll do it. That's the mark of a tyrant when they start doing that kind of crap. Pay attention. The Founding Fathers got a problem with that. But this is not how a civilized society is supposed to behave. That's not what a king or a ruler or a leader of a civilized nation does. It's what tyrants do, because he views his subjects, his British subjects, in the case of King George III, he views his British subjects no better than animals or slaves. Best case scenario, slaves. Worst case scenario, animals. That's how King George III sees his people. And understand that this is a tendency of tyrants and emperors and kings and leaders and central powers for 10,000 years. This has been going on a long time. King George III was neither the first nor the last person to do this. There is something about the central authority. It always has a tendency to trend in that direction, to start seeing the people as not the people, just a group of animals or slaves. It's very dangerous. And that's where King George III went to. That's, that's what he had become, just one of those people who had no regard for his subjects at all. Continuing on, quote, He has excited domestic insurrection among us and has endeavored to bring the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions, end quote. This was a generation, by the way, that remembered the French and Indian War, the war on the frontier. They had a concern about that. 
So basically, King George III is using every weapon in his arsenal to try to get people killed until they comply. Because when the tyrant runs out of options, when he runs out of options in the court system, when he runs out of options in the legislature, when he runs out of options elsewhere, he just starts killing people. They do it every single time. Continuing on, quote, He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands, end quote. That actually sounds eerily similar to the, the concept of impressment, which is one of the um, concerns that led up to the War of 1812, the second war with Great Britain, a few decades down the line. That's very interesting. More on that later. Continuing on, quote, In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injuries, end quote. I feel their pain. I feel their pain. I know exactly what the Founding Fathers are talking about. Petition after petition, call after call, question after question, request after request, denied, 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 and denied again, ignored, disregarded, marginalized. That's not what legislatures, that's not what leaders, that's not what people are supposed to do. Hallmark of a leader, listen, listen. That's the hallmark of a leader. One of them. Listen. Shut up and listen. And then start problem solving. But that's not what these people were getting. They were getting a whole lot of being ignored. Does that sound familiar? Anybody out there, does that sound familiar? Why, Roman, whatever do you mean? I'm just asking a question. Continuing on, quote, A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people, end quote. I totally agree with that. And by the way, this is a king who later on goes on who who later goes on to commit war crimes. As a matter of fact, by the time this document was signed, he already did, in my opinion, commit war crimes. Because he's responsible for every action of his military. Because he is effectively de facto commander in chief, like we would call our president today. King George III is commander in chief. Thus he is responsible for every act of this military. And this military does commit war crimes. Stay tuned to this podcast, I will be talking about that. The British government committed war crimes against the United States of America. Those are war crimes trials, by the way, that never took place. We just kind of let it go after the war. We are a very forgiving people. Great Britain, keep that in mind to this day. I want you to keep that in mind, that we were the victims of war crimes, very insidious, heinous war crimes. I will be describing those in the future. And in my opinion, if they could have gotten to this guy, King George III, he should have been put on trial for his life and, if found guilty, executed. Is anybody in the royal family listening to me? Check, check, check. Anybody out there? Anybody out there? I I wonder if they'll take offense to that. And obviously, I don't hold anybody in Great Britain guilty of these crimes today. Everybody who's guilty of these war crimes is dead and gone. King George III is gone. He's long dead, thank goodness. The world is a better place without him. So no, I don't blame the people of Great Britain for this today, and I don't blame the royal family for this today. I got no problem with the royal family, mostly because I simply don't live in Great Britain. I don't care what, I don't care, I I couldn't possibly care less about the royal family. I do have some good things to say about the royal family, actually. I might, I might actually mention that, at least, at least one thing I might mention on a future podcast episode, just to, just to uh, be a little bit diplomatic about it. But back in the day, the, the, the kings uh, of England, well, there were a whole bunch of them that were just god-awful people. King George III was pretty terrible, and he was a tyrant, and he was unfit to be ruler. So the Founding Fathers are saying, hey, you're unfit to be a ruler, so we're going to go our own way. 
And in my opinion, that was the right thing to do. Declare independence. Absolutely. And I'm going to skip a little bit of this section here, this next section, and I'm going to go right to the, the meat of this document, aside from what was set up at the very beginning, and of course the various arguments in favor of the Declaration. Quote, We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are and of right to be free and independent states, and they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, end quote. My God, I wish we could do that today. Pledge to each other. Pledge to each other as Americans. Our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Our sacred honor being probably the most important one there. To be an honorable people amongst ourselves in America. Boy, I wish we could get to that point. I have seen in my lifetime more dishonorable acts in this country than you could shake a stick at. But that's a story for another day. It just inspires me to want for, for us to do better. This document inspires me for our country to do better. That's the only reason I mention that. But there is a, there's an important section in here I really want to dwell on. Quote, that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, end quote. You notice how it says free and independent states, plural, not singular? But yet it refers to Great Britain as, quote, the state of Great Britain, end quote, singular. The state of Great Britain, singular, versus the free and independent states, plural, of America. Why am I dwelling on that? It gets to the fundamental understanding of what the United States really means. What are our American states? What are our United States. They are free and independent states, right? Yes. That means that today, we are supposed to have 50 free and independent states. Yes. Now, people get confused about this because they're like, oh my gosh, Roman, how in the world can we have free and independent states and be one country at the same time? Because we have a union. You ever notice how very few people refer to this country as the union anymore? The only time we ever really hear that is during the State of the Union. It's the only time anybody ever refers to this country as the union. But in the past, it was commonly referred to as the Union. During the Civil War, it was what? Preserve the Union, right? Yes. This is a union of independent states. And I'm not the only one who says that. Number one, the Founding Fathers are saying it. There's a pretty good source right there. I don't make this crap up. I've also got other people within my lifetime, very influential people who have said exactly the same thing. These are free and independent states, and they are absolved of all allegiance to the British Crown. The Founding Fathers have declared independence. From Great Britain. And in order to accomplish that, they had to, quote, pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, end quote. Otherwise, they never would have made it through it. They never would have made it through that war. That war lasted for years. It just went on for year after year after year after year after year. I mean, up until recent times, it was one of the longest wars in American history. It was longer than the Civil War. It was longer than World War II. It was a long and very costly war, and very unnecessary if King George III had just been doing his job instead of behaving like a tyrant. 
And let that be a lesson to us. If we are to maintain our freedom and our independence, if we are to maintain our union, preserve the union and our 50 independent states, we have to follow the instructions of the Founding Fathers. They put together a recipe for us to follow, and we, we should follow it. It's the right thing to do, because they did it right, and they built something pretty doggone good. Our Constitution has lasted for more than 200 years. The country itself is almost 250 years old. This declaration has stood the test of time for 250 years, ladies and gentlemen. There is a lot to understand with the Founding Fathers, why they did what they did, what led up to this declaration, and how do we better understand our Constitution and how to run this country. All of that, every single bit of it, is to be found in the letters to, from our Founding Fathers. That's where we will find our answers. And on this podcast, we are going to study the letters from our Founding Fathers. We're going to understand this country. We are going to be better citizens because of it. And we will preserve this union. And we will preserve our independent American states. And to everybody in America who joins me on this podcast, so inclined to study this material, I thank you greatly. And I really do believe the Founding Fathers would thank you as well for dedicating your time to studying this material with me and to listening to their words right off the pages. We're going to be covering the letters and correspondence of our Founding Fathers, and there's a lot in there. And to everybody international to the United States who listens to this podcast as well, be it in Europe or Africa or Asia or South America, to the extent you can listen to this podcast and are willing to, I thank you. The wisdom that you gain from this material from our Founding Fathers, not from me, but from our Founding Fathers, studying it, will improve your wisdom, and thus your countries will be better for it. I really believe that, including here in the United States of America. And I know a lot of people think that they know this stuff already because they read the Constitution once, like 10 years ago or something, but there's so much more to it than just what's actually written on the pages of the Constitution or what's written right here in the Declaration. The details, the nuance, the subtlety of it all, the fine instructions, those are going to be found elsewhere. Knowing these documents is one thing. How to maintain them, how to preserve them, how to preserve our government and our union of states, you need to read the letters for that. Good news, I'm going to do the work for you. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to pull the letters and I'm going to read them and I'm going to provide some context around them and we can talk about these things together. So I hope you will join me on an adventure into the letters of our founding fathers. And I hope that you will stick with this podcast for every episode, and I hope to see you on absolutely every single episode of this podcast. And until the next one, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.